Yes, yes, it's 6 p.m. Good evening. My name is Mark Riley, and this is the Mark Riley Show. Heard weekly, each and every Wednesday from 6 to 7 p.m. on PRN.FM, the Progressive Radio Network. Lots of things going on in the world. Got a great guest. Talk about something that is of immediate concern to some people in the New York metropolitan area, the possibility of a Long Island Railroad strike. But before we get into all that, let me first say we lost three important people since we were last with you. One, Nadine Gordimer. I don't know how many of you know who Nadine Gordimer was. She was an anti-apartheid warrior in South Africa, member of the African National Congress, Nobel Prize winner, and the one most important thing you ought to know about Nadine Gordimer is that when Nelson Mandela got out of prison, the first person he wanted to see was Nadine Gordimer. She passed, she was 90 years old, and she defined a life well lived. Also passing away, uh, and I have to say, too young, Tommy Ramon, one of the founding members, obviously, of the group known as the Ramones, the proto-punk band with their origins here in New York. Uh, and, by the way, who developed a fanatical following during their heyday. And also passing away at the age of 76, jazz bassist Charlie Hayden. And this kind of like caught me by the quick because I had just downloaded from iTunes Keith Jarrett and Charlie Hayden's album, which was actually recorded in 2007, but just released last month. And I'm like, whoa, Charlie Hayden? Charlie Hayden is on some of the most, for me, influential and important music that I've ever heard. Going back to my teen years. Which, by the way, I'm getting ready to do in a moment anyway. So we mourn the passing of Nadine Gordimer, Tommy Ramone, and Charlie Hayden. I'm going to beg your indulgence this evening for a couple of minutes. Because we're, we're going to get to the stories now. But I'm going to tell you a story. Because sometimes when you're young, you have dreams. There are certain things that you dream of doing. And for me, as a kid, you know, like 9, 10, 15, whatever, I always thought my dreams were kind of outsized. And there were certain things that I would dream about wanting to do, but I could never do. Well, I grew up in Connecticut. And my mother, in particular, was a person having three small kids who wanted all of us to get involved in some kind of activity. Mainly because, you know, we were, I won't say precocious, but we ran around a lot. We wore people out. You know, my mother couldn't get enough switches to, quote, tan our hides, unquote, for the stuff we used to do. So there were the usual things, the Boy Scouts, the Cub, not the Boy Scouts, the Cub Scouts, the Brownies for my sister. We sang in the choir and all of that. And then, when I was eight years old, a neighbor recommended to my mother that we join a local fife, drum, and bugle corps. Now, this, by the way, was in Newtown, Connecticut. 
And she suggested, she said, listen, you, you know, you can learn to play an instrument and, and all the kids can learn to play instruments and it's free. And I joined the Sandy Hook Fife Drum Bugle Corps along with my brother and sister. And I guess maybe for the first couple of years, I absolutely hated it. Hated it. Because I had a, I had a drum instructor by the name of Earl Sturtz, who was one of the finest drum instructors who ever lived, rudimental drum instructors, just extraordinary man. But he could always tell when I didn't practice, and he didn't yell and scream. He would just stare at me and say, you didn't practice. You're never going to be any good if you don't practice. And I hated that. For two whole years, I hated that. And then finally, when I was like about nine, ten years old, he said, you know, you're getting a little bit better. You keep practicing, you'll get better. And I actually started marching in parades with this Fife Drum and Bugle Corps. And in those days, they used to have, I, I think they still have firemen's parades. Different volunteer fire companies or fire companies in, in towns would have these parades, and they'd have a carnival at the end. It was wonderful. When you're a kid, it's like larger than life. So one day... We marched in a parade, and we were toward the front of the parade, which meant that when it was done, we could go back and watch the other musical units and the firemen and all that. It was always something I enjoyed doing. So I look up the street, and suddenly I was rendered totally speechless. Down the street marched a V-shaped phalanx of young ladies dressed in black and red uniforms, and marching with complete precision. I had never seen anything like it. And behind, behind these young ladies came a drum corps, a drum and bugle corps. That drum and bugle corps was called the Bridgeport PAL Cadets. And from that day, I dreamt of marching with that drum corps. Because they were, and I would see them at contests every now and then, or see them at parades. I'd, oh man, if I could only march with Bridgeport BAL. Well, fast forward a few years, and I'm at a drum corps rehearsal for another drum corps, drum corps in Milford, Connecticut. And I was away at school, and I wasn't guaranteed a spot in this drum corps. I wasn't sure I was going to be able to make it. It was late in the spring season like in mid-May, and they may not have had any spot. They might not have had a spot for me in their drum line. So I'm standing there watching them rehearse, and there are two guys that are standing off to one side. Don't worry, this is a real story. Jason, it's a real story. Trust me on this. So one of the guys walks up and starts a conversation, and the other guy walks up too. So, hey, how you doing? Da -da 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 -da. And then they said, one of them said, so are you going to march with these guys? And I said, I don't know, because I, you know, I don't know if they have a spot. I might, I might not. I don't know. So they said to me, one of them said to me, I think it was the person I'm about to talk about, said to me, well, you know, you can come march with us. And I said, well, who's that? <laughs> and they said, Bridgeport Pal. And I, Bridgeport Pal? This was the drum corps I had always dreamt about being a part of. Dreamt about being a part of. There was one problem. 
I lived in Newtown, which was like 25 miles from Bridgeport from where they rehearsed. So I said, I, I, I can't do it. I, I don't have any. My mother's not going to drive me all the way down here. I didn't have a driver's license at the time. I can't do it. So the two of them look at each other and they say, in unison, don't worry about it. We'll get you back and forth. And I'm looking at them like, are you crazy? But they weren't. And I spent that summer, it was 1968, marching with Bridgeport Pal and fulfilling and realizing a dream. And I have always been indebted to the two people that looked at each other and said, don't worry about it, we'll take you back and forth. One of them, I just ran into less than a month ago, up in Bridgeport, of all places. His name is Richie Warga, and I see Richie periodically, like once, twice a year. And it's always great to see this guy because I am always and perpetually in his debt. And he uh, hit me up, I think it was on LinkedIn or email, I'm not sure which. And Richie has gone on to become a very successful architect, working for a firm actually in Jersey. And he said to me, listen, in, in this evening, he said, listen, I'm, I'm running a drum corps show on Saturday, July 19th. If you're still on the radio, could you mention it? If not, I understand. But if you're still on the radio, could you mention it? Jason, I couldn't say no. I couldn't say no to this guy. This is Richie Warga, the guy who helped me fulfill my dream. And therefore, I will mention the Kiwanis Open which is taking place this coming Saturday, July 19th, 7.30 p.m., at Kane Stadium, which is at Windsor Drive and Dorigo Lane in Secaucus, New Jersey. Now, you can see it when you're traveling down the turnpike and heading toward the Lincoln Tunnel. You can see that stadium. I'm going. I'm going to be there. Mainly because even though I don't march anymore, I still love marching music. And I know I'm going to see Richie. We're going to have a big hug together talk for a little while, and he's going to go back to running his show. But it's the Kiwanis Open, Kane Stadium, Secaucus, New Jersey. If you want information, you can call 973-615-7598. 973-615-7598. Now, I'm not getting anything out of this. Jason looked over here like, wait a minute, what are you doing? I'm not getting a dime out of this. I am doing this for a friend who helped me realize my dream. And I'll see you Saturday, Richie Wagner, for show. Anyway, it's 11 minutes past the hour. Enough dallying and dillying. Some interesting news to share with you. Uh, the New York Post never ceases to amaze me. I, I probably shouldn't read it as a result, but it never ceases to amaze me. So they do a piece earlier this week. Headlined, Holder, race is behind political opposition to Obama and me. And I thought to myself, oh, man, this man done touched the third rail again. See, because to the New York Post and some of the people, not all the people that read it, but some of the people who read it, there's nothing worse than a black guy talking about race and racial animosity. Gets their dander up. They get upset. Now, what Eric Holder said, this is last Sunday on ABC News, 
It's a quote, you know, people talking about taking their country back. There's a certain racial component to this for some people. I don't think this is the thing that is a main driver, but for some, there's a racial animus. Unquote. Now, does somebody want to argue that point? Jason, you want to argue that point? Nope. <laughs> okay. Uh, if you do, you can call. We're going to open up the phones a little earlier than normal tonight. 888-874-4888. That's 888 Uh I mean, I, I guess you have to ask yourself, you know, does Eric Holder have anything to lose by making a statement like that, which I consider to be relatively harmless? New York Post makes it sound like he ought to be bounced from office and ridden out of town on a rail. He also had some not-so-complimentary things to say about post-icon Sarah Palin, whose wacky brain has cooked up the notion that Barack Obama ought to be impeached because of the crisis at the border. Even John Boehner and Dick Cheney won't go for that. But what the heck? You can lump that in. Holder criticizes Palin over the impeachment thing, said she wasn't a real great candidate in 2008, and there's some truth to that. But you know how it is when you touch that third rail. Sometimes you get singed. You know what I mean? Now, here is a story I I really kind of contemplated putting in the ridiculous column. But I'm not because on some level, I think there are people who believe this could happen or, more importantly, ought to happen. Have you heard about the six Californias thing, Jason? There's a guy, a billionaire, but of course, who wants to divide the state of California into six states. Count them, six. That's right. He's got a petition, and he says he's got enough signatures to make the November 2016 ballot. Uh, There's a Twitter account belonging to the nonprofit Six Californians. They tweeted on Monday that Six Californians will be submitting signatures in Sacramento for placement on the November 2016 ballot. Stay tuned for coverage. Now, you might want to ask, what would be the purpose of taking California and chopping it up into six states. Well, the guy who came up with this brainy idea is a guy by the name of Tim Draper. He's a venture capitalist. What else? Uh, he's a founder, founding member of the venture, venture capital firm Draper, Fisher, and Jervetson. They're known for their investment in growth ventures like Hotmail, Baidu, Tesla Motors, and Skype. He also, by the way, won the federal government's auction of bitcoins once owned by the online drugs portal Silk Road. I guess maybe that's his qualification to say that California ought to be carved up into six states. Now, to be fair, I don't live in California, all right? I love California. It's a gorgeous place. I have family from California. And by the way, Last week, we talked about the California water shortage, and the next day, the New York Times had an editorial entitled, California's Water Shortage. So I think I may have been onto something, just a little. Anyway, this guy Draper, 
wants to carve California up into the following states. The state of Jefferson. I assume Thomas and not George. This would be the northern part of the state, which includes Humboldt and Mendocino counties. Then there would be North California, which would be Sonoma, Napa, and the Sierra Nevada. Then there would be Silicon Valley, including a big part of San Francisco, San Jose, and what most people now consider to be the San Francisco Bay Area. Central California, the Central Valley Farm Region, including Tulare and Fresno counties, which, by the way, if they turned that into a state, it'd be one of the poorest states in America, which may be the point. Then there's West California, which includes Santa Barbara and L.A., and South California, including the inland empire of San Bernardino and Riverside, plus San Diego. Now, Jason, first of all, if you're going to carve a state up into six, you might want to come up with some snappier names, <laughs> okay? Uh, Jefferson, Central California, West California, South California. I guess uh, this is what you would expect from a venture capitalist who came up with this. You know, why not call it the Inland Empire? That's what everybody else calls that whole area, San Bernardino and Santa, Santa Barbara, all those places out there. Now, I have to look up, and, and, and I'm going to do this to tell you the truth. I'm going to look up my history and find out exactly what it takes to become a state in America, much less six. Because I think, I'm not certain, but I think you have to have more than just a referendum in one state in order to turn that one state into six. I think you have to meet certain criteria on the federal level to turn California into six states. Uh, here's what uh, Draper said in a video on the Six Californias website. If we have six Californias and we, in effect, dissolve the one we've got, those six allow us a new start. Really? Really? What kind of new start? First of all, each one of the states would have its own legislature, its own regulations, its own rules, its own laws, etc., now, I remember many years ago when people wanted to make New York City the 51st state. And people laughed. <laughs> that was Jimmy Breslin, Norman Mailer, I think Pete Hamill was involved. A bunch of people wanted to make New York the 51st state. Now, if you can't make New York the 51st state 45 years ago, what the deuce makes people think that you can carve up California into six states. And by the way, 59% of the people in a recent poll who live in the state of California say they're not down. They ain't with it. So uh, we'll see whether that gets any further. It got a little burst of media coverage, so we shall see. It's 20 minutes past the hour of 6 o'clock. This is the Mark Riley Show on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.com. FM. Now, what's going to happen with the Long Island Railroad here in New York, the nation's largest commuter railway, has had more 
plot twists than an O. Henry novel of late. The other day, they walked away from the table. Everybody made it sound like a strike will happen before you know it. And then, earlier today, they went back to the bargaining table. So, this is way above my pay grade to figure all this out. But I got a very special guest with us. A guy who knows more about labor and unions than I think any other guy in the city of New York. He is a distinguished editor of the chief leader newspaper. He is Mr. Richard Steyer. Rich, how you doing, buddy? I'm okay, Mark. Thank you for that kind introduction. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, what do you make of these latest plot twists and turns over here? I still have a feeling that at some point Saturday evening, the governor is going to come out and tell everybody that uh, they've finally reached a deal. I don't think that it's going to come to a strike, although I've been wrong before. <laughs> what, now, uh, you wrote a, a column. Rich, for those of you who don't read The Chief Leader, and you should, uh, Rich writes a weekly column called Razzle Dazzle. Talk about what you said in that column this week. I mean, basically what I was saying was that it's an odd sort of situation. You had the governor today talking about uh, riders being held hostage by a possible strike. It's an odd thing to hear coming from a governor who basically put a gun to the head of state workers three years ago in order to get them to accept the three-year wage freeze and uh, major increases in uh, health benefit uh, payments that they had to make, as well as nine furlough days that this is a situation in which, at this point, it's not the unions that are being unreasonable. It's the state that has been too slow off the mark, in large part because the governor sent the MTA into the first presidential panel back in December uh, to go before the mediators asking for the same three-year wage freeze as their opening position. And uh -oh. the presidential board in December basically came in with a proposal of a 17% wage increase over six years that would be offset by having uh, Long Island Railroad workers for the first time pay a portion of their health benefit costs, which would have risen to 2.25% uh, by next year. And this was uh, dismissed out of hand by the MTA. There was all sorts of talk about a strike. And finally, belatedly, the MTA agreed to have another presidential emergency board come in. And that board in May basically came back with the same recommendation that the December panel had. And the MTA is still basically not anywhere close to that. The unions are merely asking for what the two presidential panels have suggested they should be getting. The MTA finally came in with a counteroffer about a month ago, uh, which on wages doesn't look substantially different. It's 17% over a seven-year period. Mm -hmm. But what they would be doing to try and get back an awful lot of what they'd be giving out there is to look to gouge uh, future hires, what are sometimes known as the unborn, uh, basically asking them to pay twice as much in terms of health benefit contributions as people who are already on the job, asking them to uh, take longer to get to maximum salary than uh, is presently the case. Uh, basically, it would be twice as long a period, and also asking them to pay uh, towards their pensions beyond the 10-year limit that exists right now for LIRR workers. They would basically be doing it for their entire careers or at least until the 25-year point where they become pension eligible. And mm. the unions have taken a look at this and basically said, 
we're in a good position. We're not looking for the moon and the stars. We are basically just going with the federal mediator's recommendation. We should not be the ones who are making a big move towards a compromise, that it's the state that has to make the movement and the MTA that has to do that. Now, for people uh, who are listening to us who don't know what the MTA is, that's the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, which is the authority that oversees the subways, the buses, and the commuter rail lines. Uh, here in the New York metropolitan area. Rich, we've seen in the past, uh, going back a number of years now, uh, the state of New York uh, tell various unions, whether it's creating a new tier, uh, like a tier six or whatever, uh, this whole notion of saying future workers will not get what you're getting. And, And it seems as though they do this to pressure the current workers to look out for themselves and not look out for their kids or whoever may come behind them. Do you see this as a as an ongoing tactic, and do you see whether it has any chance of success? It is an ongoing tactic. In this particular case, I don't think that it's going to succeed simply because it's the workers who have the leverage. Because in the case of the Long Island Railroad people, they are not under the state Taylor law, which prohibits strikes by public workers. Mm. They are covered by the Federal Railway Act. And under that, basically, once the arbitration panel or the mediation panel made its recommendation, there is a cooling off period where the workers cannot go out uh, just because management doesn't accept the recommendation. But that cooling off period comes to an end at midnight uh, this Sunday morning. And at that point, they could go out and they don't face any of the penalties that would be faced by city workers or state workers if they went out on strike. Richie, do you get a sense that uh, there may be some clock stopping on Saturday night into Sunday morning? Uh, we've seen that happen before in other labor disputes where they say, okay, uh, we're supposed to be able to strike at midnight, but we're going to stop the clock because we think there may be some bit of progress that's been made. There's a good chance of that happening. The last two times you had a potential of a significant strike, uh, it involved the Transport Workers Union Local 100. And in 2002, they actually stopped the clock, and they negotiated through the night into the next day, and late that day they were able to get a settlement. In 2005, when you had a strike, there was actually a period when they stopped the clock where they were supposed to go out on uh, the 16th. They decided to keep negotiating, and it was three or four days later that they finally went out on strike uh, so that there is always the possibility of extending it, that it doesn't have to happen right away. You could argue that tactically from the union's point of view, uh, it would make sense to go past Sunday because while going out on Sunday would affect people who are coming home from the Hamptons for the weekend, uh, the maximum leverage they would have would be for a strike that would begin Monday morning Monday when morning. you've got everybody looking to commute in and commute back so that uh, if anything, they might have an incentive to keep the talks going if they thought that there was a glimmer of a hope that they could reach a deal, figuring that they would have even greater leverage if they waited until Monday to go out. Our guest is Richard Steyer. He's editor of the Chief Leader newspaper. Richard, let me ask you to step back a little bit from this particular situation and talk a bit about what I consider to be the demonization of unions. Uh, There are a couple of tabloids in this town that keep hammering away at the notion that the Long Island Railroad workers have it too good, uh, that they you know, should be capitulating on this to whatever demands the MTA has, and specifically the notion that 
private sector employees don't have the kind of pension and health care benefits that many public employees have. Uh, and and uh, I can remember, I'm old enough to remember when that wasn't the case, but it seems like there are some people that want to take public sector unions uh, as far as some of the benefits they get to where the private sector is now, or am I wrong? No, I think that that's an accurate characterization, that uh, increasingly private sector unions have lost a lot of their power over the last three decades. And at this point, an awful lot of the union power uh, throughout the nation is concentrated among public employee unions, and they're looking to hang on to what they have. They are not looking to really build on the gains that they've made in the past. They're looking to resist efforts through the legislature, through governors around the country, uh, to take away what they had negotiated over the years. And there's what a friend of mine refers to as pension envy, where you have an awful lot of people who see what public employees are getting in terms of pension and health coverage, and they're very angry about that, when really they should be looking at it and saying, why is it possible for us to have something like that? And I think the a big part of the explanation is that unions are still strong in the public sector at a time when membership is waning in the private sector. Richie, what do you make of Governor Andrew Cuomo's position in this? I mean, there are those who say, well, you know, he's, he's running for re-election this year. Uh, he said at one point that, you know, the Congress ought to fix this. And, and I can't imagine why he thought they would. And when they said they wouldn't, he went back and said there was, you know, that, that this shouldn't happen. Then yesterday he turned around and said, well, you know, if it happens, uh, there'll be some pain, but we'll get through it. And then today he turns around and says, well, you know, the, the, the region can't really afford a strike. What is he doing here? I think to some degree he's tap dancing, and it's hard to say whether that's because he hasn't figured out what he's going to do or simply because he needs to fill time between now and Saturday that if you want to get maximum dramatic impact, if you want to get maximum political impact, then the way to do it is to announce at 11 o'clock Saturday night that you've managed to head off a strike and that you've got a deal and people don't have to worry about whether they're going to be able to get their train either uh, on Sunday or when they go back to work on Monday. And so that uh, it becomes a situation in which, I mean, this is time-tested. It's happened over the years with rare exceptions, with rare glitches, where mayors and governors let it go down to the wire. They may have a deal in hand, but they simply decide to wait until the point where it's going to be most dramatic to say that we've saved you all, that uh, there's peace in the kingdom and life can go back to normal. Richie, uh, a few hours ago, uh, the MTA's uh, president, uh, Prendergrass, walked out of the uh, of the negotiations uh and you know he was followed by a whole bunch of reporters who tried to get him to you know say something about why he was leaving uh, a spokesman for the MTA Adam Lisberg said you know don't read anything into it do you read anything into it that the the, the MTA the transportation authority's chief negotiator for management walked out of the talks I think that to some extent there's some frustration, and part of that may be because the governor put him in a difficult situation in the first place. When they went back before the federal mediators in December, they knew that it wasn't a realistic proposal to be coming in with a three-year wage freeze and some of the other givebacks that they were seeking. But this was something that the governor wanted them to do. It put them in a bad spot. It left the mediators with a lot more freedom to simply go towards what the unions were asking for rather than searching for some sort of compromise 
simply because there was too big a gulf to bridge, and they knew that uh, what the state and the MTA were putting out there uh, was unrealistic. So uh, some of it, I think, is frustration, knowing that while the governor is being looked at as the potential savior here, he's the one who helped create the crisis in the first place. But I think that the other part of it is that uh, they're looking to mount a campaign in which they get the public rising up in anger beyond just the tabloid editorial boards. Mm-hmm. And they've started running ads basically questioning how greedy the workers can get on the notion that people are going to see what they're being paid and decide these guys have it too good. Why are they threatening to strike when, in fact, it's not the workers who are being unreasonable here based on neutral mediators suggesting that this is an appropriate way to resolve the dispute. It's the MTA that should be making the major move toward a compromise. And I don't think you're going to see the unions moving very far until they see that uh, the MTA has actually come close to what they've gotten. That uh, There are international unions that believe when a presidential panel recommends you get something that you shouldn't compromise at all. But I think ultimately it's something that if it's a small move that the unions have to make to get a deal that they ultimately will. It's just something that you're not going to see them splitting down the middle where the MTA is and where the unions are. That just isn't going to happen. Final quick question, Richie. We appreciate your time with us this evening. If there is no strike, if there is a settlement, do you believe, uh, tabloid editorial boards aside, will this be a victory for labor? Uh, It almost never is characterized that way by the tabloid editorial boards. I think that it's fairly predictable that the Post will suggest that the governor has sold out the people of New York with a settlement that is much too costly in terms of how the Daily News will do it. My guess is that they will accuse the unions of having engaged in a shakedown and uh, the MTA having no choice but to bend to them. I don't think that they're going to say that it was because of good negotiations. I don't think that they're going to say because ultimately federal mediators decided that this was a reasonable place to be uh, at this point in this economic climate. I don't expect that you're going to see a whole lot of compliments going to the uh, Long Island Railroad uh, union leaders no matter how the strike comes out or, I should say, negotiation comes out. All right. Richard Steyer, great to talk with you, man. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure thing, Mark. You take care. You too. Richard Steyer, he is the editor of the Chief Leader newspaper. Comes out on Tuesday mornings. I pick it up. It's a weekly. Uh, You ought to pick it up. I mean, if you're looking for any kind of civil service work, number one, that's where you find the lists. But also some really trenchant commentary about labor and unions in New York. Our number is 888-874-4888. we got 25 minutes left for this here program, and we're going to make good use of that time. Uh, you know, this, the District of Columbia, which i got to be honest, has never been my favorite, favorite place. A- any city that's built on top of a swamp is not necessarily a place I want to be, especially this time of year, okay? But leaving that aside for the moment, I've had family that's lived there, still got family that lives there. Uh, and yeah, Washington, uh, you know, my wife went to school there. Washington is Washington. And, you know, th- this whole District of Columbia thing, you know, we're talking about six states in, this, in, in what was what is now California. And nobody really wants to seriously talk outside of the District of Columbia about Washington becoming a state. You know, they have their license plates, taxation without representation. 
That's exactly what it is. And one of the things that I've seen over the long term is that if a conservative lawmaker, congressman, senator, whoever, if they want to get even with an African-American lawmaker, and the African-American lawmaker doesn't have to be anywhere near D.C. could be John Conyers in Detroit. But what they decide to do is mess with the district because Congress has an outsized responsibility slash sway over goings-on in the District of Columbia. Now, D.C. has a law that is, I believe, now just coming on the books that would make marijuana possession in the district punishable by a $25 ticket, which the New York Times describes as one of the laxest drug laws in the country. I don't think so. Jason, this isn't one of the laxest drug laws in the country. Colorado and Washington State have legalized it. You want to go smoke a bong? Fine. If you're in Denver or Seattle. Oh, by the way, did you notice those are the two cities where that were last represented in the Super Bowl? <laughs> Denver and Seattle. Anyway, I quibble. So D.C. wants to make it punishable by a $25 ticket. Well, not a bunch of members in the House of Representatives. One guy in the House of Representatives wants to use congressional prerogative to stop this new law. Now, the mayor of D.C., Vincent Gray, has urged residents of Washington to boycott the beaches and resort towns of Maryland's eastern shore, which happens to be where this guy comes from. Uh, his name is Andy Harris. Never elect a guy to office who uses a nickname. I'm sorry. Andrew Harris? Yeah. Andy? Andy? What you, well, never mind. I'm not going to get into that. Uh, Vincent Gray says that Andy Harris is interfering with democracy in this city, and we want people to understand how we feel about it. Now, here's the thing about weed and the district, because it's true here in New York, too. Uh... Washington, in case you hadn't noticed, has a sizable black population. 50% black. Not as black as it used to be, but 50% black. Jason, take a wild guess. How many people, what the percentage is of black people that are arrested for possession? If half the population is black, what's the percentage of people busted for weed? Easily 90%. That's it! You won! Sorry, I can't give you a card. It's downstairs. But, yeah, 90%. So half the city's black. 90% of the people charged with possession are black. Now, this guy, Andy, <laughs> seems not to care one way or the other about how the district feels about it. Because the district city council voted this, passed this 10 to 1. 10 to 1. But he doesn't care. He does not care. Uh, and by the way, Maryland, where this guy comes from, they decriminalize weed in that state. Now, 
In the past, some of these same conservative Republicans have stopped Washington from implementing a needle exchange program. They stopped them from having a registry of gay domestic partners and medical marijuana. All eventually got passed. So, I, you know, and, and by the way, his rationale for this, well, we have to protect the children, quote, society has some responsibility for protecting minors. I think the D.C. law protects them in no way, shape, or form. Now, we're going to get to protecting children before this show is over, all right, because what's happening at these borders and the political football that innocent children have become, we will talk about. But right now, I believe we got our good friend Michael S.W. I think he's on the line. He's calling from the Bronx. Michael, how you doing, buddy? Hey, buddy. Good to talk with you again. Good to talk with you. How you been? I'm doing okay. Hanging in there, counting down the vacation. There you go. And, oh, yeah. Can't wait for that. And just going day by day. What's on your mind? Well... How would you like me to share a little right-wing hypocrisy with you? We don't have that much time. <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. Go ahead. Oh, that's a cold shot. <laughs> Anyhow, we all know about the pending LIRR strike. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, we should believe there's a bunch of right-wingers that are blasting Mayor de Blasio for going ahead with his planned vacation with his family. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That was Rudy Giuliani started that. Well, he didn't well, start it, but he was one of those that started The editorial boards of the tab started that, Michael. Oh, oh Now, man. mind you, there's nothing de Blasio can do about this. Nothing. This is even Mark, the subways. You, you would just, you have read my mind, good buddy, because everyone needs to remember the LIRR, the subways, the buses, the express buses, the Metro North, all that is under MTA, which is a state agency. Yeah, I mean, I think he gets some people, he appoints some people to the board, but so does Cuomo. And Cuomo's not doing anything. But the funny thing is that people think that the Blasio can do this or do that because Bloomberg interjected his um, wannabe tyrant butt into, he was the one that was largely responsible for converting seven private express bus companies um, into MTA-owned. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that, because there was supposed to be a whole bunch of money that came out of that. Hasn't come. But but you want, but it gets better than that, Mark. In here, I did not hear any of these right-wingers, these hypocrites, say a doggone thing about then-President George W. Bush going on vacation a multitude of times, and especially when he and his partner in crime, Dick Cheney, kept saying, we're a nation at war, and we got to watch out for the terrorists, and blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, I I saw Dick Cheney on TV today, and every time I see him, I keep saying to myself, why? Why is anybody in their right mind paying the slightest bit, 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 I should say, of attention to this clown? I got a better question than that. Why isn't his conniving line but behind bars right now see i have a message for these right wingers and that is i wasn't born yesterday so please don't blow smoke up my 47 year old butt i got you michael listen thanks a lot for calling man always you got great it, to buddy. With you. have a great one you harriet too. our good friend from bayside is next in the queue harriet how you doing 
I'm doing good. Um, now, you started to talk about the immigrant children. Yes. Now, send, and all the politicians are talking to them about, are talking about sending them back. Including the president. Yes. And you know what? It reminds me of when Jewish children were evacuated in World War II. Uh-huh. I remember. And, and they came to New York. They came to New York, and there was a boat called the St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And they, and they the wouldn't American let it dock, right? They wouldn't let it dock, and those children were sent back to their deaths, and that's what that reminds me of. Harry, why do you think it is that so many people are framing this? I mean, these are children, okay? I mean... Uh, you know, I mean, you don't, first of all, it is a daunting task for a Guatemalan or Honduran child to get from where they live through the other, other nations, including Mexico, to get to the border. And they risk their lives doing it. Yeah, they risk their lives doing it. And in some cases, they are escaping drug cartel violence. And guess Absolutely. where the drugs are going? The drugs are coming here. Yes, you know, not. and not, and not only that, but uh, these children, you know, risk their lives to come here. And uh, people talk about illegal aliens. Um, who is the fir- who is the first illegal alien? Christopher Columbus. You got it. <laughs> Ever see the lady who stands in the harbor? Mm-hmm. And says, give me, you're tired, tired you're, you're poor, poor, you're huddled masses, yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shores. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Couldn't have said it better, better Harriet. Thank you so much for calling. I really appreciate that. And I'm glad you brought this up because that was the next thing I was going to go crazy about up in here. The notion that American politicians, who will on the one hand say, well, our children have to be protected from marijuana use, and a $25 fine doesn't do that, but at the same time say, oh, we got to send those kids back on the first thing smoking. And by the way, they've already started. They sent uh, a a plane load full back to San Pedro Sula in, uh, in Honduras. How do we do that? I just find that to be the most inhumane, ugly impulse that Americans have exhibited. And it's not all Americans, but there are places in California and, and, and Arizona, they block buses, they want to, you know, they, they want to knock people, you know, send it back, send it back now, send it back. We don't want them here. Now, never mind that in most cases, when these kids come here, they are not turned loose in various communities. You wouldn't know that because some people have conspired to make it sound like the minute they get off of the plane or out of confinement or whatever, however they get into this country, the first thing they're going to do is set up shops selling cocaine. That's nonsense. It's utter nonsense. And, you know, we, we, we rightly, rightly get upset about children who die in hot cars. And there's been all too much of that happening of late. 
where somebody leaves their child in a car, go to get their hair done, go to do whatever, go to do this, go to that, and come back and the child's dead. And we evince an extraordinary concern, extraordinary concern, and rightly so, for those children. But I was always brought up to believe that a child is a child is a child. And that you don't differentiate. You don't. And the bottom line is simply this. You have to find this country, you know, the exceptional country. We have to find a humane way to deal with this. Exactly how? I'm not sure. It's above my pay grade. But God, to act like these children are somehow... I saw some guy on television talk about, well, you know, they could be gang. They could be possibly members of gangs. Kids are five, six years old, for God's sake. How do you do that? Now, the White House said the other day that it's likely that immigrant children facing mortal danger in their home countries will be allowed to stay here. And the ultimate irony in this is that the law that allows many of these children an automatic asylum hearing, that was passed by and signed into law by Bush, not Obama. Now they want to get rid of the law. An automatic asylum hearing. What are you, crazy? We got to get them out of here. Uh, Republicans, and last I checked, George W. was one of them, they want to change the law. So they want to be treated the same way as children are treated from Mexico and Canada. Why can't kids get a hearing? I don't understand. I really, really don't understand. Two days ago, the United States deported a group of Honduran children as young as one and a half years old. Now, this is after the president pledged to speed up the process of sending these undocumented immigrant children back to Central America. Now, a rational, sane America would, before they started putting kids on planes a year and a half old, they would ask themselves a couple of questions. Why are these kids coming here? And it's not because they all read up on George W. Bush. It's not. So why are they coming here? Because their lives in their home countries have become unbearable and untenable and unacceptable to adults and children. That's why they're coming. Kids seeing guns, kids seeing their families shot, killed, kids living in crushing poverty. Now, I am not one of those who says America is responsible for all this. But America could play a role in alleviating it. We could. A lot better and a lot more than we now do. Now we wring our hands about, well, there could be as many as 150,000 kids. What are we going to do with them? We better do better than stick them on a plane and fly them back. 
Uh, and by the way, many of the mothers of these kids are paying stupid money to smugglers to get them here. Anybody talking about locking up the smugglers, Jason? Ain't nobody, a lot of people, I don't think, even realize that's what's going on. Uh, you know, and, and the thing is, when it comes to this, well, you have to secure the border. You have to secure the border. Let me tell you something. Obama spent more money on securing the border than Bush did. They don't tell you that, but it's true. So why this whole mania? And by the way, it's not just mania. It's political foolishness. See, because it's the Republicans. Well, we have to secure the border. For, well, what does that mean? You want to send out drones that just cut kids down before they cross? Is that what you want to do? How do you want to secure the border? They get all, they don't know. They don't know. All they know is that they can pander to the basest instincts of some of their constituents by saying they don't belong here. Send them back. It is reprehensible. It is ugly. And I hope I never see, in the time I have left on this small planet, this kind of ugliness again. You know, it's bad enough we got kids in hot cars. Bad enough. And then there's this. And, you know, we got a couple of minutes left here. The Israeli-Palestinian thing, the Gaza thing, I, I hesitate to say anything about it because it's become what it's always become. Lobbing rockets here, lobbing rockets there. Hamas and the Palestinians. Now, the Egyptians came up with a, you know, with a ceasefire. Hamas wouldn't go for it. So they hurled some rockets, the Israeli hurls rockets. The Palestinians are the ones that end up getting killed. The first Israeli just got killed yesterday. And uh, please, don't think for a moment I am minimizing life here. Because I'm not. Israeli people shouldn't die. Palestinians shouldn't die. But what, what exactly is the end game here? They'll keep lobbing rockets. Hamas will lob rockets. The Israelis will shoot the rockets, or they'll shoot their, the, the drones out of the, the, have the drones shoot the rockets out of the sky. More people will die. And then everybody will point fingers and say, they're the problem. Hamas says the Israelis are brutal, killing people. And the Israelis say, we're just defending ourselves. Now, given in how old I am, and how many times I've seen these same scenarios play out, it's easy to think a pox on both their houses. But we can't. We can't. The United States has got to become a more honest broker there, whatever that may entail. And we've got to do better. Just like we got to do better at the border. Come on! We're Americans, for God's sake. We can't do any better than this. Now, speaking of not doing any better than this, 
My, to the ridiculous segment this evening may anger some people, but quite frankly, I don't care. Because it's the Mark Riley show. You want to get mad? Call Jason and see if you got some time to do your own show. Oh, his phone's broken. Sorry. <laughs> you heard about this police officer in Jersey City, New Jersey. Well, maybe some of you have not. Cut down. Cut down. Uh, by a guy who apparently told people he was going to be famous. And he's become famous because he, you know, like, got shot and killed. And what happens when he got shot and killed? This Jersey City cop, uh, Melvin Santiago, young guy, not on the force that long, wanted to do good in that part of Jersey City. Well, the wife of the killer, the wife of the shooter, says they should have taken them all out. Every cop on the scene. Angelique Campbell is her name. Uh, that's whack, <laughs> okay? That's absolutely whack. They set up a memorial for this guy, Lawrence Campbell. Cops came, tore it down. I don't think cop killers should be lionized or lauded, or memorialized. I'm sorry. That's just me. Uh, it's, it's just, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And then you got a guy on television who says the reason why all this happened is because black men don't have fathers. He's been suspended. He should be selling insurance. <laughs> Okay, you should be doing something else. Join a clan, which, by the way, they got rid of a couple of guys in Florida, cops who were members of the clan. Members. I assume in good standing. What is the world? What in the world are we coming to here, ladies and gentlemen? I, I ask you, not because I'm trying to be coy or facetious or whatever, but what are we coming to? Shipping kids back memorializing thuggery. What is wrong with us? Demonizing unions. I've talked about that earlier, too. Sooner or later, ladies and gentlemen, God willing, we'll get our heads on straight. My thanks to Jason Taubenfeld, as always. I want to thank you all for listening here on the Progressive Radio Network. You can access us at prn.fm. You can go to TuneIn. You can go to iTunes. You can listen to us all over the place. So stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. I'll be back tomorrow. Not tomorrow. I'll be back next Wednesday, 6 p.m., live here on PRN.FM. My name is Mark Riley. This has been the Mark Riley Show. Have yourselves a great week ahead.